Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Hey guys, welcome back. Sorry for the delay. Uh, working with a doctor on this episode was, and especially in the time of COVID, was a little bit of a struggle. I'm happy to say that we did finally get the episode wrapped up and I have received approval from her prior to submission. Um, I'm going to go ahead and not actually disclose her name, but she is a board certified pediatrician. She actually treats both of my children and I, I just wanted to share with you guys some of my thoughts with COVID and how that translates into schools being closed, vaccinations that are coming out, and children being used in the trial phase. Um, my pediatrician actually is on the forefront of that effort. She has participated in the FISA trial herself, and in phase three, she is actually putting two of her children in the trial as well. So. She is a firm advocate for the vaccination, and I wanted to give my audience kind of an alternative perspective to see, you know, what her thoughts were and, and how she sees those challenges moving forward and why she even thinks the vaccination is necessary given the ability for children to overcome. So this was a really fun episode for me just because, you know, I know my daughter's pediatrician, my, my kid's pediatrician personally. So it was fun to be able to to do that and then also touch on some local issues that we're having here within our own community, as well as some of the um, nationwide and global issues that we're having with COVID-19. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. All of you know how I feel about it, but I wanted to at least go ahead and get some professional perspective before um, I uh, unleashed on the world. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know your thoughts. Don't forget to subscribe. Let's start with, let's start local. Let's talk about Floyd County in general. So we're seeing a significant increase in cases. Absolutely. Is that, now we've put a mask mandate in here in Indiana. So let's touch that just teeny tiny piece first. Because originally, going way back to March, we were told by the Surgeon General that Masks are not effective because they actually cause the potential for more exposure because you're touching your face more. You're not wearing the proper type of PPE that's necessary to protect yourself from illnesses like, let's say, a physician or a a nurse or something like that. And so more mask wear could actually result in more infection. Are we seeing that as potentially being a reason we put this mask mandate in later and now we're seeing a huge increase in cases? Well, that is a very good question. The first thing is is to go back with the history of the pandemic. And when initially the Surgeon General talked about not wearing masks, but he felt that masks would cause more harm than good in the general public, um, you know, part of that was we didn't know a tremendous amount of, about the disease. Now we know a lot more. Um, the other part in that is that, um, as you've heard, they wanted to reserve the PPE for the medical community right. because I, it was incredibly difficult to get PPE in March. Incredibly. Like, remember we had patients. We, we employed. Yeah, we were bringing like, stuff into you guys. Yeah. 
Yeah. You guys were bringing in like gowns. We gowns in 95, surgical masks. We were not allowed to order anything through our medical distributors. So we were having to see patients without PPE. And I think that's part of it is they didn't want this incredible rush on uh, PPE because of the shortages we were already seeing in the medical community. So that's part of it. The second part is, yeah, mask wearing, you actually do have to uh, be mindful of how you wear the mask and how you take on the mask and or uh, put on the mask and take off the mask. And, and it was something that they felt maybe that the general public wouldn't be able to do um, appropriately, causing more infection because you're <coughs> touching yourself. You know, you're touching your face more. You're touching your face more, touching a dirty mask, laying it on a table that's dirty. Um, And so I think that was probably part of it as well. And so from the get-go, everybody just screwed up. The mask (laughs) message was a complete and utter disaster. Don't do it, then do it, you know. And and so you you tell a population of people, and we're, we're America. We are right. freedom loving. We, <laughs> we love this country, and the vast majority of us don't want to be told what to do. That's why right. we live in America. If You're we right. wanted to be told what to do, we could live in Canada, or we could live in China, or we could live in, you know, uh, Russia. You know, we could live places where we're told what to do, but we right. don't want that. And so you have a, a message that was faulty from the beginning, and you tell a bunch of people that and then you go never mind i think you guys should all wear masks and now we're going to mandate it and people are like losing their minds because like how can you you know what has the science changed what are you telling us right i mean conceptually in your mind you're thinking you know if you had come to me and said hey you know what we were wrong about this we think it actually might might be a good idea for you guys to do this we think it may help you yes that yeah. re- <laughs> that would have been received much better than, yeah. hey, I know this is what we told you before, but this is what we're telling you now, and you must do this. And it's like, you know exactly. what? It's like middle fingers coming up all over the place. <laughs> yes. yes. There's zero humility uh, with mandates. And right. um, we as Americans do not like that. We do not like that at all. So, you know, me being um, more conservative and, um, you know, I have, like I said, the libertarian bent, the problem is, is that I'm friends with many, many people who disagree with mask mandates. And I don't necessarily like mask mandates. I feel like if you just would show the public, just show Americans that this can work, that if we wore our masks correctly – that we could potentially drive down this infection, we won't get, we won't make it go away. I mean, that's a false narrative. You're not going to just get rid of Corona because everyone has a mask on, um, because people still take their mask off <laughs> to eat, and right. uh, you know, people don't wear it correctly, and you still socialize and and all of that. But I think that's the the big thing is if you ask people to do something and you explain to them the reasoning and the science behind it, I feel like that goes a lot further than pointing a finger and saying, you have to wear this mask, and if you don't, we're going to fine you, or, um, you know, we're going to call the mask police. You know, Karen's going to call us. Or take away your business license so you can't practice uh, your business anymore. Right. Exactly. You know, you're you're going to shut down a business because they're not wearing masks. 
So I feel like wearing masks is a good thing. It's one of the three-pronged approach that we have to fighting this disease because we don't have truly effective treatments yet. You know, rostimlevir is still out there. They're still using it. Um, And, um, you know, they're trying all these other things. But we know that hand-washing, mask-wearing, and social distancing, that's the best approach that we have right now to continue to drive down this infection until we can get a vaccine. So have things Um, changed from the beginning? And, I mean, this is – I am not a medical doctor, obviously. Right. But I think Mm -hmm. originally when this came out, the whole point of the whole washing your hands thing is that the way that this disease originally was believed to be transmitted was from your fingers to the holes in your face, your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. And there was no way that you were going to get this disease without that contact from, from an infected surface to your hands to your face. Has that changed? Have we now determined that it is, in fact, an airborne illness that is aerosolized where it's similar to tuberculosis where you have it, you cough, I walk in the wake of your path, and now I could potentially have breathed it in? Correct. So initially – Things that we could control, uh, fomite spread. And they really felt like fomite spread. So fomites are the things that you touch that um, can be covered with viral particles, right? So mm-hmm. like your doorknobs, um, doorknobs, handles, um, you know, flat surfaces, uh, you know, things in the bus, things on sure. the subway, anything. Anything that's a flat surface that you can touch and then touch your face is that's called fomite. And that's one of the initial concerns was, you know, we've got to clean everything. We've got to be crazy. We've got to be crazy clean. Like, you know, the, the people washing their vegetables, uh, right. cloth wipes, you know, I was like, no, you do not have to do that. This is crazy. <laughs> you do not have to worry about getting takeout. Just wash your hands before you eat. Like, come on, you know, right. let's use some common sense. And now they've shown, um, just over the months that fomite spread is actually pretty negligible. Um, you know, so they do these, they do these studies that show, oh, well, the, you know, 10 feet away in this person's room, we were able to find, uh, SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Well, what they're not telling you is that that's not viable virus. They're just finding viral fragments. So right. RNA fragments. And so that wouldn't cause an infection. So what you're saying is when they talk about viral load, the the load of what is transmissible is not high enough in that content for me to actually, quote, unquote, catch the virus. Is that what you're saying? Well, correct. But you have to okay. remember, too, Heather, the virus has to be viable. And really with fomite spread, so, yes, if, you know, 30 snotty kids, touch their snot nose, and then touch the doorknob, and then you come up right behind the 30 snotty kids, touch the doorknob, and then rub your face through your nose, that would be high risk. Okay. But um, but in, in terms of viral load, that is a whole different conversation. Okay. We're just talking about is that virus viable? Okay. So you have viable vi- – if you have a viral load, that is viable virus. Okay. That you are infectious. At some degree or another, you have the you have virus in you that is replicating, whereas a viral fragment, so RNA fragments, those are pieces of the virus. 
Okay. It's, you know, those are pieces of the virus that aren't going to cause infection. Got it. Yeah. So uh, it, and it's hard to conceptualize that. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, how can you have RNA there, but, you know, it not be viable? Well, you know, we have RNA all over us. And if you played it out, I mean, that's not going to like grow something. Sure. Yeah. It's just fragments of our our uh, DNA that we're, you know, that we're seeing. So the the whole fomite transmission thing has gotten, um, it got a lot of play initially, and now it's really very minimal. And, uh, you know, we still clean surfaces. We still do sanitation. But this whole, like, idea of closing a school and deep cleaning is just not really well-grounded. I mean, initially we were, initially everything was overkill because we had no idea. Right. No, so this of course. Was a new virus, and, and it was just scary. Um, but now, you know, we're more and more science is showing that this is airborne and aerosolized. So okay. there's a, the, let's go through. So aerosols. So uh, respiratory viruses. Um, when you when you think of respiratory viruses, those are viruses you get from you know talking. Someone talking, coughing in your face, hugging you closely, breathing in your, in your direction. Okay, and so there's this huge continuum. I actually did a video on this. There's this huge continuum of respiratory droplets. So you have the big mother load droplets, you know, that hold tons of viral particles, right. all the way to the little itty bitty aerosols, all the way to the little bitty aerosols. And then what happens is those little bit of aerosols, they're still on a very small amount of uh, droplets but they're very, very small. So actually the big droplets do more harm than the little droplets, but if you have enough of the little droplets, they can add up and give you an inoculum. So that's how much virus you need to become infected. They can have enough of an inoculum um, that could be dangerous. And then an airborne is just basically like that viral particle in that little aerosol. And then what happens is the um, the little bit of, Oh, you know, condensation or whatever you want to call it that the virus is riding on eventually evaporates. And then the virus just remains in the air for a period of time. Typically, that's not incredibly long. But if you have enough of it in a room or in close proximity to somebody, that can be dangerous. So you see there's this huge continuum. And that's what we're figuring out. And um, and I just I don't quite understand. I, I It's hard to follow the CDC on this. It really is. Uh, you know, they say it is. And I've got some fine. major CDC questions for you yeah, here in a few like, minutes. Oh, but. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. And I don't understand what is going on with the CDC because they've always been very reputable. Like, I've always looked to them. And the problem is, is they're the only organization we have, the only agency we have here in America that really, really giving us this information. Sure. And and so we don't have anything else as medical professionals. We don't have anything else. Do you so, think, you know, I mean, do you think politics are playing a role? Do you think that there are nefarious have, characters who are trying to, uh, you know, right. manipulate I, that data? Okay. I don't feel, uh, from a science perspective, most scientists are very factual. Right. right? They, they They let evidence speak. They let the data speak, and they do not go into politics. They right. just say it is what it is. There's no right or left. This is just what it is. And I feel like whether it was pushback from the left, from the right, from whatever, I feel like the CDC kind of played into politics here. This is just my own personal opinion. Um, 
Yeah, and well, I, I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah. Being the head of the NIH on the front cover of Vanity Fair next to right. a pool with his socks on, like, I'm, right. I'm so sorry, but I've never seen that in my entire life. Yeah, this is, it's, it's crazy. And then you have these organizations like the NIH and the CDC and, um, you know, then Dr. Fauci and all this, all this stuff. And, and then they're saying, well, they're wrong and they're right. And, you know, I don't right. agree with him. I don't agree with him. And it, and it goes back to the whole mask mandate. Americans are like, I'm not buying this load of crap. Right. I, I don't believe it. Instead of knowing who to believe, they don't believe anybody. They're just like, well, I don't believe anybody. <laughs> I'm just going to go, wild. I'm just going to go back to the wild, wild bus here and I don't believe anybody. So whatever, you know. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> and then, and then that, that's difficult too as a pediatrician who's on the front lines. You're like, man, I know, I know these guys are a bunch of buffoons. But come well, I mean, on, you, you know? and I have had conversations. I've been in tears yeah. with you. Like, yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know, I, I get it. Um, I, I diverted a little bit. Let's go back yeah. to Floyd County. So right now, okay. um, total cases that we've had, latest numbers that I've looked at, 213,000 total. In the last, uh, what I can see, cases, it's 4,911 current active cases that we have. Is that correct? Let me look here. I'm pulling it up. I just looked. No, it's taking me a while to pull it up. Okay. In Floyd, we want Floyd County, correct? Yes. Okay, hold on. Let me find it. I was just on it today. I actually was going to write this down before you called, but then I got distracted by my call. That's okay. It's not a big deal. Christmas lights that weren't working. Okay, as of today. Your Christmas lights weren't working? Is that what you just said to me? Yeah. You have your Christmas lights up already. Heather, hashtag suck at COVID. Oh, yeah, it's part of cold outside, baby. It's on like going to on here. Okay, so, yeah, total test administered, 34,405. Total positive cases, 2269, with a 15-day, 7-day rate for unique individuals. I go by unique individuals. Okay. The reason why, the reason why, if you look at the positivity all tests, the reason why I like unique individuals, and it's very interesting because um, – and I, I had a video on this. It's like the wild, wild west of reporting numbers. Some people use all tests. Some people use unique individuals. There's absolutely no consistency from state to state to state. Many okay. states like to report all tests because it makes their numbers look better. So all tests would be um, over this week, so the seven-day positivity over this week. Um, I have, you know, uh, let's say I work in a nursing home. So I get tested two to three times a week. Within the right. nursing two times two times a week, I get tested two times a week. So every week, two of my negatives are going in the denominator, okay. and that would be for anybody working in a nursing home, anybody, and all the nursing home, all the nursing home um, residents. So that could boost the number to look better, I guess, or yes, less so accurate. A, okay. Yes. So your denominator is full of people being tested multiple times that are negative. Sure. So what the all so that's all tests. So that makes your percent positivity look much better. Sure. So the finally uh Indiana started um reporting on unique individuals as well. 
So there's two ways to look at it. There's all tests and unique individuals. And the unique individuals, I think, is more accurate in terms of what's happening on a community level in terms of viral spread. Sure. And, you know, community transmission, because what we're looking at is within a community, we're looking at people tested, not the number of times each person is tested. Okay. So, so that that person who's negative at the nursing home, even though they were negative twice, they only count as one person. So it's one negative in the denominator. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Versus two negatives or whatever. And if you look at positivity over the course of a month, if you work at a nursing home and you're tested twice a week, you might be getting tested five times, eight to, right. I mean, eight to ten times. And all of those go in the denominator. And the ISDH has um, said, well, it's really important to factor in all those people are still negative. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not really telling me anything about community spread. So right. when you look at our number, we're at 15%. Um, and, and your ideal out. number, like when you, when we've talked about this, is it 11%? No, my ideal number is under five. Oh, under five. Okay. Just kidding. That was yeah. a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It was like a joke. Okay. No, <laughs> yeah. No, under five, man. Under five. We okay. Under five. But that's whatever. It's not going to happen. It's the wild west. It's America. <laughs> uh, so you know what I'm saying? I do. <laughs> Kentucky. Man, let me tell you, that place is, uh, it's, it's different down there. Um, <laughs> I work in Louisville, so I know exactly but, what you mean. But this year, it's like, okay, the red is in, at 6%. Oh, we're in red, we're at 6%. And I'm like, right. are, you, are you kidding me? <laughs> We've been, we haven't been as low as 6% for quite some time. Right. And we were only, we were only there like for a week, maybe, if even that. <laughs> but, but let's go back to, um, oh, shoot, what were you going to ask? Uh, the mask mandate and the fact that cases are going up even though we have these stupid mandates in effect. Right. right? And I shouldn't say stupid. But I would say I, I'm of the opinion if you implore people to do the right thing and you show them the science and you treat them like adults, that the majority of people will do the right thing. And right. even if even if over 50% mask, that would really help. But so – we. Pandemics are what they are. You, what's going to happen is, you know, people get pandemic fatigue, which we see. Right. So yeah, you have this mask mandate, but what are people doing now? Uh, I'm not wearing mine. You're, you're right. You're acting like there's no pandemic. I got pneumonia, and I was like, I'm done. I I can't do this anymore. I'm not wearing it anymore. Yeah. So there's there's this whole pandemic fatigue, which we've asked people to give up livelihood, to sacrifice seeing their friends, their family. I mean, small businesses have gone down, gone under because of this pandemic and all these sacrifices, and people are done. And what happens when people are done? Even though they're not going to they're not going to wear it. And they're going to get together with their friends because they're tired of not seeing their friends. And they're all going to go out to eat, and they're all going to go out to bars, and they're all going to do this, and they're all going to do that. And then the virus spreads because that's what it does. If there's people with mouth and noses in close proximity, the virus spreads. Just saying. Right? Right. And and so I don't feel like I don't feel like saying there's a mask mandate is causing the the cases to go up. 
right? I mean, it's, it's not that, well, everyone's masking, but it's still going up. So it's a faulty assumption that if you wear a mask, that it's not going to affect the virus spread. Sure. Right? It's, it's the outlying factors that surround the mandate it's, itself. Yes. It's people are just done. They're just 100% done. And um, and the problem is, is now that numbers are creeping back up, actually, I shouldn't say creeping. I should say shot back Shooting. up. Gonna, yeah, like I'm looking gonna, at the graph for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really what's going to happen is we're going to, we're going to go and, um, or probably around Thanksgiving will peak. Because yeah, flu season's coming along with it. Yeah. Flu season's coming along with it, but this is what the virus does. It kind of peaks again. And then it, right. and hopefully, hopefully if we get a vaccine, we can start getting that out, especially in these long-term care facilities. First so I want to talk to you about the vaccine real fast. Oh yeah. I love it. I love it. I love okay. vaccines. Everyone should do it. Well, you know me. I am not an anti-vaxxer. You've been taking care of my kids for yep. angry. I mean, you've had her for eight years yep. now, almost nine. Yep. So yep. Um, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I have a little bit of a problem with the approach that's been taken with this particular vaccine. And I, the reason I want your opinion on this is because to let the audience know, you are personally per- participating in the vaccine study, correct? And that's for Pfizer? Yep. Absolutely. And, and you are actually uh-huh. have or are going to enter both of your children, your your two sons in the vaccine trial as well, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. We have so they were supposed to get their um their first shot two weeks ago, but they are still working through the numbers of the twelve to seventeen year olds, I think. And um they needed to get that data before they could give because my sons will be in the um the basically the 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 phase three my sons will be immunized in the phase three so right now it's still kind of in this phase two or um, actually phase one phase one to two and it's going to move quickly though to phase three um but yeah i don't have any issues with it i don't i'm like okay so here's where my issue comes into play and i'll i'll tell you and you Assuage my my concerns. Okay. So this particular this disease, the actual COVID nineteen infection rate for the zero to nineteen age group is like point. Or I'm sorry, infection fatality rate. Okay, we'll say that. Right. It's right. like point right, right, zero right. zero 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 three percent. It has a survival rate of ninety nine point nine nine seven percent. So right. that alone. And I'm just talking 0 to 19, which is traditionally where we start focusing on vaccinations, right? So in that age group, if our body's immune system has the ability to survive this disease at a 99.997% rate, why are we looking at vaccinations? Why are we trying to introduce something else if our body immune system is taking care of it at that high of a rate on its own? Right, if you're young. Right. No, no, no. And I, I'm fine. You know, we start looking at tw- uh, even, I mean, at 50 to 69, it has a 99.5. And these are CDC right. numbers just for anybody in the audience listening. Right. Absolutely. And I get it. I get it. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that this disease, if you look out, the amount of people it's affected. And at when the numbers go up, the positivity rate goes up in a community it really strains resources. It absolutely okay. strains resources. And so part of getting a vaccine, 
vaccine is to decrease the burden of, first of all, disease within the community. That'll help us save lives. Okay. And um, and also to help with the resources because what's ha- what we saw in Italy is so similar to the flu. Yes, they started. It doesn't well, solve or cure the disease. Correct. It's to correct. minimize how many people are taking up beds where we don't have the resources necessary to take care of those people. Right, because okay. when. Like, already now in Floyd County, the numbers are up. And I watched the ICU COVID admissions and beds availability, and it's gone mm-hmm. way down. I mean, we have more and more and more acuity. The interesting thing is the vents haven't gone up tremendously bad yet. Um, okay. I'm waiting to see what happens there. But it is it's, here's the other thing, though. It, you can't compare COVID, which I'm not saying you are, to the flu. With the flu. Oh, I wasn't trying to do that. I was trying to say the the application of the vaccine, but yeah. What I want to show you with the flu is the infectious fatality rate of the flu or the case fatality rate is actually a lot smaller than what we think. A lot because think about how many flu kids I have. Like, right. I don't, I don't report any of them. So you have offices that are seeing thousands of kids with flu that are not reporting it. We're, right. you know, the same thing with adult because it's a very cumbersome thing to have to do to report every single flu to the state. Mm-hmm. Initially, I did that when we had the um, H1N1, right. swine flu outbreak. I was, and then eventually you're like, I just see too many. I can't even, I can't even report this. This is crazy. You know, I don't, I don't have enough staff to report this. This is nuts. And so when you look at the flu fatality rate, it's a lot smaller than what people even are saying. And then when you compare COVID fatality rate, it's still, like you said, very, very small if you happen to be in those low-risk groups. Those age gaps. But, man, if you're in a high-risk group, it's bad. And, and, you know, there are lots of young people who have died from COVID, just like other diseases. But it's one that – COVID is very interesting as well because when you go into the hospital, you're not there like two days. If you're in the ICU, you're there like three or four weeks, sometimes longer. And so those patients don't move out. They just stay there. And when you keep adding more and more and more sick patients, there's nowhere else to put people. Right. And that's what we're looking at because the disease severity is so much more than flu, first of all. And Second of all, you just there's only enough there's only enough beds to take care of people, and so when the people actually do have heart attacks, and when the people are having strokes, and when the people have cancer, I mean you've got to get those those people in, and you've you know you've got to take care of them, and so that's that's the other reason for a vaccine. So and and, and I respect that because back in, I I wrote an article back on February 12th when this was very first starting to take off. At that point, here in the United States. We had, uh, and I actually did worldwide numbers. So at that point, we only had 45,170 people who had been affected. Right. And that, again, we were going off of China's ability to report actual numbers. So Which is just, we know that never happened. Sure. But their infection rate that they listed was 1,115 people. And so I, I went and looked and I pulled CDC numbers for flu. And again, like you said, you know, what was reported 
isn't always 100% because it's such a cumbersome process. But even at that point, I told people, you know, this is a serious thing because on the high end of even our flu, it translated to a 0.14% chance of dying. COVID-19 had a mortality rate of 2.4%. So even at that point, it was a significantly higher, more toxic disease than the flu. I've never compared the two because to me, it was a much worse disease. Right. And, and, you know, so you're right. Lots of people do very well with it, but there are lots of people that don't. Uh, and so by having a vaccine, one of the things that that's going to enable us to do is to find more semblance of normal. Right. Because if we can, if we can suppress this and we don't have exponential growth, and if we can get enough of the community, uh, immunity, you know, get enough of the people in the community immunity that's going to last, you know, who knows how long, maybe two to three years. Right. I don't know. You know, we that's to be determined. Um, then, you know, people will open back up their borders. People will travel. The economy will will go gangbusters again. People, you know, we might still have to wear a mask a little bit longer until we get enough people vaccinated. But um, it's a way to get back to normal, I feel like. And, and it's a way to protect. It's a way to protect. Sure. Because, and you know, you know me, I, like I said, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but some of yeah, the concerns that I've really found with this process, it, and as of the research that I had done, and I did this four weeks yeah. ago, so this may have changed, yeah. but at that time, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca had all suspended their stateside trials due to one concern or another with, with the way the trials were proceeding. It, are you sure Moderna did? I thought it was just AstraZeneca. And I, and I know Pfizer didn't because they still Pfizer didn't. Pfizer didn't, but Johnson & Johnson did. Moderna right. and AstraZeneca. Those are the three that I found that had suspended. Now, right. one of those, Moderna, I think, was the one who had the patient that had had severe issues. It was later determined that that patient yes. was in the placebo trial. So yes. I, they may have picked back up since since I researched this. Right, right. Um, But my concern is there, there's two, my concern is twofold. One is conflicts of interest in medicine. So right now, the person who's handling vaccine administration on the government level that was chosen by the Trump administration is the former CEO of Moderna, um, Monsef Slaoui, I think is his name. And, Interestingly enough, when you become a government employee, you are not allowed to personally benefit off of the the thing that you're you're participating in. Well, they decided to hire him as a contractor, so he kept ten million dollars stake in GlaxoSmithKline, which is also in the vaccine contention right now. They kept him on as a quote unquote contractor, but he's the one that's handling. So I, I have a problem with people who have vested financial interests when it comes time to start, you know, issuing vaccinations out to people. And then the second part that I have a problem with is four years is the shortest process ever for a vaccine that has ever been implemented in this country. So we look back at, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. We look back at SARS. We still haven't developed a vaccination for SARS yet, which is another coronavirus type virus. And 
we've identified there was a patient I know of in Nevada who has now had COVID-19 for the second time. And so if we don't have long-term immunity within our own bodies, which is how we're developing these vaccines, what are we really looking at as far as efficacy for the vaccines moving forward? So those are my twofold. So attack those however you want to, but I'd love to hear your opinion on those. So the first one, the first one about having a stake, um, and I get that, and I don't like that either, but I think that's part of the capitalist society and the way vaccines are made. Okay. And, um, and they have to use these people, I guess, for distribution, correct? And right. so it's not like the government can just say, well, we're just going to do it on our own. You have to have. The government can't do anything on their own. <laughs> Yeah, you have to have these companies be involved. And so I understand the concern there. And really, I don't have a huge comment on that. I mean, I think a lot of it could be fishy. Um, but at the same time, this is what we have to work with. Right. Right? I mean, nothing's perfect. It's COVID. Yeah. And you want to get a vaccine out. But the second issue is um, in terms of uh, the speed at which this has been going on, what you have to look at when vaccines come out, there is, you know, the phases take much longer because you do not have an entity like the U.S. government sinking billions into the making of the vaccine. They are private companies that have to sink their own money or they have to have people help fund it and they have to go very slowly with this because the money's just not there. Right. Do you understand? So yeah. there's so basically there's no insurance for a company that makes a vaccine and then oh it doesn't work and then well now we're up a creek. Right? right. And so what the US government has done under Trump was basically say, we will take all financial risk off of you. Just make this vaccine. So that took several years off of these vaccines being made because okay. these companies can just go gangbusters and do what they need to do and not worry about if it fails, then we're out however many millions and millions and millions of dollars for our company. Right. So that is basically what is enabling this to go very quickly is the government has insured or financially backed the making of all of these vaccines. So do you feel like as a participant that the safety measures are there? Yes. They still have to hit. They still, if you look through here, they still have to hit metrics that are very similar to metrics of other vaccines. They still have to hit certain metrics. They still have to show this. Now there is the EUA that um, will be coming up, but as long as they've proven it safe, as long as they've proven it efficacious, and as long as they've showed that, um, you know, they've, they've met those those uh, metrics, then that's what you would do with a regular vaccine. They're just right. able to do it quicker because of the financial backing. And the the fact that, um, you know, there's still the internal review boards, there's still the FDA that they have to they have to go through. So it's not like the FDA is going to say, oh, yeah, go ahead. 
Right. The FDA could basically say, mm, no, I don't like any of these. And then we're left without a, a vaccine. So okay. it still has to go through all these safety checks. Um, and then the, the, the thought of the actual SARS, so SARS-1, that there's no vaccine, you have to go back to what was the financial incentive. First of all, that, that is over, right? Right. We're not seeing SARS-1. That was actually an MRA, mRNA vaccine, so just like the Pfizer and the Moderna. Mm-hmm. And it was already, it, they were using that, um, to create that vaccine, but there was no financial incentive to do it. And it was, hard for them to continue that process without having millions and millions and millions of dollars for the research and the make of the vaccine. Okay. Yeah. And I think, too, when we look at it, when we look at vaccines, there is so much science in vaccines now that that we can take, you know, what we know from the making of other vaccines Along with the fact that you have this, you know, these, this financial barrier removed and you can push these vaccines, you can get them to where you need them to be. And, um, you know, unfortunately we don't have four years for, oh, there's my dog, sorry. We don't have four years for, you know, a coronavirus vaccine. Right. Now, I think that once they find a safe and efficacious one and it's met all the, the, the checks by the FDA and one comes out that, you know, we'll see what the long lasting immunity is. And, and when you talk about, let's talk about long lasting immunity, a vaccine, what they're doing is with the Pfizer study. And if you look at the other vaccines, I don't, I, I personally like the mRNA vaccines better. I, I, um, the AstraZeneca one, if I remember, the Oxford AstraZeneca one, I think, was the one that they were having some um, neurologic stuff with. Right. But when you look at um, – oh, man, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Long-lasting my- immunity. Yeah, long-lasting immunity. There we go. This is a long question. So long-lasting immunity. <laughs> it's okay. Um, what we're seeing on people that have had – the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, mm-hmm. and who had COVID-19, is that they do build some antibody response, um, and that you were finding after about 90 days that wanes, and they can become reinfected. That is incredibly rare, though, incredibly rare. And um, but what we're seeing with those people that have had the vaccine. Not only are their levels of antibody higher than someone who had the quote unquote wild type vaccine, meaning the vaccine in the wild, or I mean the, the, the disease in the wild, we're seeing those antibody levels higher in vaccinated subjects as well as T cells. So the cell mediated immunity, the T cells, I did a video on this too, the T cells are the chomp chomp cells and they right. have, um, they basically <laughs> yeah, they have more ability to, you know, kill off this virus. And so we're seeing that within this vaccinated community that compared to someone who has had it, the disease in the wild, that their immunity is way, way better, way better. Okay. And that's what we're banking on with this vaccine. Because we're seeing these, you know, this great T cell response with the vaccine as well as better antibody levels 
and the, the T cell immunity is really what we want for these viral diseases. And, and so that's what we're seeing and that's what we're hoping for. So yeah. one final question. You bet. And I will let you go so you can enjoy the rest of your Sunday with your family. Oh, yeah, no, I think that I'd like to have this segment as you work your way through the trial and stuff, especially once yeah. the kids get started. I think it would yeah. be a lot of fun to have you back on. Yeah. Um, and, well, actually, I have two questions I lied to you. The first one, okay. I want to touch just one more time on CDC data because I pulled, I pulled death just yeah. across the board. So I pulled 2017, 2018, 2019 total death in the United yeah. States. Yeah. So <clears throat> 2017, we had 2.8 million. 2018, we had 2.8 million. Uh, well, let me go further numbers because the two, that 2,813,503, that was 2017. 2,839,206, that was 2018. So we went up a little bit. Went up a little bit more in 2019. We were at 2,855,000. So in 2020, January through September, we were at 2,130,000. And if you do, I guess, the projections that they have, so plus those three months, October through December, you'd be looking at an average of 236,000 deaths for those three months if, if the year is to continue the way that it has which would actually project 2020 total deaths at 2,838,000, which would actually be less than we had in 2019. So my question is, when we are continuously talking about these additional 200 plus thousand deaths that we've had from COVID, where is that huge increase in our annual total deaths as a country? All right, I'm processing. So basically, it projected deaths through the end of this year are actually less than what they were in 2019. Well, total deaths for the entire country is total projected to be entire, less. Total yeah. deaths right. is projected to be less by about 20,000 deaths. You got me on that one. You might not want to put this on there. Let me think about this. <laughs> no, I, I think that it's important to at least I ask you one question you can't answer because well, I don't. The okay. math doesn't make sense I, to me. When I, I see on the TV 200,000 COVID deaths, conceptually in my mind, that is a block of death that has been shoved down our throats for eight months now to right. say, Look at how many people have died from this disease. But when you go look at the overall annual numbers for the CDC over the course of the last four years, we're on trend to to be lower than the last two years. Well, I know our flu deaths were a lot less. And part of that is because of lockdown, because we locked down at the beginning of flu season or not in the beginning, but in the midst of flu season. So March flu kept, flu goes strong here until sometimes late April. Okay. So maybe part of that is that's still not enough of a chunk there. But, okay, so we've decreased flu. Then you had the whole country on lockdown for several months. So what were people not doing? Driving. Right. And how many MVAs do you have? I mean, it could be part of that. 
um, right? So not right. as, not as many people driving. Uh, people weren't able to get drugs, so they couldn't do couldn't have as many overdoses because everything was shut down. Right. Um, and if you don't have money, you can't go buy your drugs. So that could be part of it. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's a really good thought, though. That's a really that's a very interesting concept because um, oh, what is it called that we look at the the unaccounted for deaths? Uh, you know, they've been talking about how those are higher. Because I just, when mm-hmm. I look at <clears throat> comorbidities, like if I look at heart attack, strokes, you know, the mm-hmm. things, every single metric across the board in this country has plummeted. <laughs> Flu, right. it doesn't matter what type of death we had in 2019, every single one of those metrics is lower. So mm-hmm. it's, it, the question begs, are we just labeling every single death as a COVID death for, you know, purposes of, of CNN to splash it on the screen? And then really we're looking at, we actually, because of the lockdowns, we actually mitigated a significant number of deaths over the course of the last year. And we did better as a country from a death perspective. So it's it's kind of like you can't have your cake and eat it, too. You can't tell me we have 205,000 additional deaths when we're actually going to finish the year out lower than any than the last two years. Do you know what I'm saying? I get it. I totally get it. I'll be interested to see where we do finish the year out. I would, too, just because, yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. we're projecting yeah. – you know, the average number for those last three months, if we see an uptick in flu, COVID, et cetera, as we come out of lockdowns in many of these countries now, we do have access to drugs, you know, things like that. I'll I'll be interested to see if that 236,000 average for the next three months holds true. Right. Yeah. Okay. What's very interesting, too, is if you look at, if you look at the data on deaths, you know, we have Initially, it was terrible, and now we're learning how to manage it better. Right. And um, so I think that's going to play a huge part. Well, even avoiding, I think the prophylactics, and and I don't know, I don't want to get into the whole, like, hydroxychloroquine and all of that stuff, but the prophylactic treatments or the early on, you know, vitamin D, zinc, you know, that kind of stuff, if that is contributing to the lack of, hospitalizations or need for ventilation, you know, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how everything plays out. And then my last question to you, and this is completely personally motivated and political. Sure. Can you tell me a viable medical reason for why we are doing digital online virtual days for traditional learning students one day a week for the remainder of the year. Ooh, okay. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. It's not necessarily to decrease the disease within the pediatric population or within the school. I think it is because of the stress that the teachers are under. That is really what we're dealing – that is really what we're looking at. Now, I would say in terms of high school, older, you know, like 12 and up, 13 and up, uh, the hybrid model, 
really needs to be in effect because you decrease the uh, amount of contacts by 50%, right? You You say that, but now I want to take that a step further. So are we not risking higher contact risk because you're you're having to put these kids somewhere? So instead of – because you've always talked about, and I'm trying to remember the word that you use, cohort, I think, is what you talk about, like – you're yeah, limiting their access right. outside of that group of individuals. There's no cohorting in in high school. There's just none. They go to <laughs> different. They go to seven different classes with multiple. The amount of contacts is out of control. So there's no social distancing. And then they go home and they party with their friends. And then they go to more parties on the weekends. And then they go to work. And then they. I mean, so right. I understand that. Well, if you keep them in school, there's you know there's structure there. And yes, I get it. But Teenagers have, they engage in higher risk behaviors. Like right. I've had, do you know how many teenagers I've had to test multiple times? And it's never because of school. Right. It's because <laughs> of outside never, of school. It's because they're idiots. And they <laughs> cannot, they cannot fathom that you, you know, that if you're in close contact with someone, you know, someone who has a mouth and a nose and you have a mouth and a nose and you've chosen to be really close to that person with a mouth and a nose, with your mouth and a nose, that, you know, dang, you can get infected. (laughs) Over and over again, you know, these teenagers. um, And it's, well, you know, we didn't get to school. Where'd you get it from? Oh, I was at a party. I was at a party. I was at a party. So they're they're, going to engage in that behavior anyway. Right. Right? The little ones, it's important to keep them in school five days a week, every day, no matter how bad it gets. I really believe you've got to keep those littles in school. Have they you seen an increase in your practice of the mental health type of issues oh. or even like ADHD, yeah. things like that? Have you seen yeah. an increase where you it feel like so it's more negatively impacting this, our community by yeah. keeping kids out of school than it is keeping them in? Uh, yes, in terms of the ability to learn, yes. There are some kids that are doing quite well with virtual, but the vast majority of kids do not do well virtual. They just don't. Um, and especially in the elementary school, you know, the kids with the IEPs, the kids right. with, that need therapies, and I did a video on this, but these kids have got to be in school. These developmental preschool, I mean, these kids need to be in school. And, you know, there is... Well, I think about Lily, like, developmentally, I feel like trying to get her to do virtual learning, that is not going to work. That's a joke. That's like trying to train a cat. You can't train a cat. I don't have cats (laughs) just because of that. They're terrible. But, um, no, the the depression and anxiety is so bad. It is right. so bad right now. Um, and there are a lot of kids that are doing great with virtual because they had terrible social anxiety, and now they're at home and they're doing fantastic. Right. But a lot of these kids, you know, depending on the way you learn, just the um, virtual is just not – it's not good. What's really interesting, though, is um, – if you look at data from all over different countries, you know, New South Wales, United Kingdom, um, and then look at some of the states like Florida, where it's the Wild West, man, you go to school, you don't have to wear a mask, there's no distancing, there's no nothing. Really, their cases within the schools are pretty small still, pretty small. Right. Um, I think, though, in terms of, you know, the public health and 
how are you how are you going to um, work around the teachers and their fears? Because really, I think if you even had 100% in-person school, there would be more cases, clearly, because you're going to have more contacts. Right. But, um, but is it really going to lead to massive outbreaks, and is it going to drive the pandemic? And we've, we've seen over and over and over, the answer is no. Going to school does not drive the pandemic. It does not. It is right. not going to make the pandemic worse. It is basically what you're going to see in school, though, is going to be from what you see in the community We over and over again. If the community numbers are high, you're going to have higher numbers in the school. Right. Um, so, but so yeah, you know, no, it really is. You shouldn't, I, and, but I have, I have, I have, um, I've been a strong advocate for keeping these kids in school. Oh, and, I know you have. And um, and I've said over and over again, I don't understand why we have virtual days. I'll probably get myself in trouble. Hopefully no one from Floyd County is listening to this. But uh, <laughs> Or they like us and they agree. Uh, right. But, you know, I've said over and over again, y'all, you cannot do these littles in virtual. You can't. You cannot do these kids in virtual. Well, that's my thing, too. And I, I think my, yeah. my huge issue. Over, over again, you cannot do it. Is that yeah. if you do have these kids that have social anxiety issues or you have kids that have high health at risk, either adults at home or are themselves, right. Floyd County was given the option to do virtual learning and you could choose that for your family because that was the right. best option for you. My yep. issue is that there are those of us who looked at it and said, no, traditional learning is the best option for my child. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ainsley had severe depression yes absolutely severe depression she is a social child and she craves it and she needs it and I was so thankful that SIGS opened up the gym in what was it was like I think May when they finally reopened for the kids and she had practice but I I kid you not the day that they went back to school the next day at practice the the visual difference that you could see in those children's faces, personalities. They had something to talk about with one another. They had something to look forward to where they hadn't had that for months. And now you're trying to dial that back. And I think it's in preparation to, you know, come Thanksgiving, we're going to start looking at closing down for longer periods of time. And I, I, that is what I'm anticipating. And they've set themselves up for the opportunity to do that. What's not logical, it does not make sense to me how you're telling me there's a justifiable reason for I chose traditional learning. You're going to force my child into a mandated weekly virtual day, and then I can send my child to one of the schools that you have shut down through a YMCA program with 200 other kids. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It doesn't make sense to me. And now you've exposed my kid to more kids than you would have if you'd have just kept her in her classroom. I get it. What's interesting, the YMCA, man, they've done a bang-up job. Bang-up job. Daycares. Look at how how many daycares have you seen shut down because of COVID? Not many. There's some, but not many. And you know what it always is? It's not the kids. It's It's the the staff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that – that's the hardest thing is, um, you know, even the medical community is, there's so much fighting about schools and being open. 
I have not heard one pediatrician in across the country, not one has defended keeping the schools closed down. Well, it's really interesting because I'm on two different Facebook groups. And the first Facebook group was, it started initially, like, what are we all going to do about school? You know, what are we going to do? How are we going to get kids back in school? And there were a lot of naysayers on there, and there still are, saying, well, I don't think our kids should go back, and it needs to be this, and it needs to be that. And then another group was founded um, by pediatricians that were like, this is ridiculous. I'm tired of these naysayers, and we just need to get our kids back in school because that's what the data shows. And so there is still – there is there are still pediatricians out there that – don't want schools open. I don't know any personally. I don't know any personally. Right. I mean, you know, if you just asked around, pediatricians were like, "You got to, you got to get these kids in school." Right. But you're always going to have, you're always going to have the really, 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 you know, fearful that you should everything needs to stay shut down. Versus those that are like, "Nope, get the kids back in school. Shut, shut down the other stuff first, but man, keep the kids in school." Right. Uh, but I agree. I mean, I don't know anybody that wants to keep the kids out of school. I do I do fear, though, for our county I, with the numbers going up. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I don't know what the – Well, know, we have a fairly limited – I mean, we have a great hospital system, but it is, right. it is limited for the number of people that we have in our community right. and right. how – I mean, even when I say our community, we are Floyd County, but even Washington County, which is the largest county – is right next to us, and they heavily rely on Clark and Floyd County Hospital System. Yes, they do. Yes, they so do. So I, I I agree with you. I, I think that it's really important for us to keep an eye on taxing our system. Yes. So I, I don't – I've never said this isn't something that that could go bad really fast. I've never been a person. I am one of the people from the very beginning who said how serious this was. I have a problem in that younger age demographic where, you know, the symptoms are mild, the cases are mild. Keeping them under such a tight lid is where I have a problem. So, right. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that, you know, uh, sure, teenagers still hang out, but can you do it in a safe way? Do you have to have 60 people? Can you have five people? <laughs> Can you play outside? Can you oh, play basketball? Did you, you know see? I, mean? I I want to like, just real quick. Did you see the stuff that came out from California, what the mandates are as far as? Oh, yeah. Two or three people in the home. I don't understand. Like, how are you going to tell people what to do in their home? Right, like, right. You can only have, but you can't even do it in your home. You have to do it outside of your home. Oh, Lance. Your your Thanksgiving dinner must be on a paper. Oh, hold on, I'm just gonna read them to you because they're really funny to me. So this is California's Christmas Thanksgiving gathering guidelines. Oh, no more than three households, including your own, may gather. The host of the gathering must collect all names and addresses of those attending. All gatherings must be held outside. You can go to the bathroom inside of if the bathroom is frequently sanitized. Are you, you are allowed to gather in an open park, three households only, but no concurrent gatherings like with people you know in the same park. All seating must be socially distanced. All food must be in single-serve disposable dishes. You must wear a mask at all times unless you are consuming a bite. 
You can only gather for two hours maximum, and singing is discouraged. But if you must sing, you must wear a mask and sing below a standard speaking voice. Why would you live in California? Why would you ever think the government can tell you how to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas? Wow. (laughs) Well, the sad thing is, they think they can. I know. I know. All right, lady, we'll end on that note. Just a good joke for everybody. I do like the masking up between bites. I mean, that's great. Right. Disaster. Come on. All right, lady. Thank you so much for coming on with me. I will touch base soon. We'll do it again. Yep. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course. Others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!